Hello, fellow mojos. How you guys doing? Hanging in there? Crazy times, huh? (laughs) Well, I've got a little podcast distraction for you. A discussion with a true international woman of intrigue. A real-life superhero, Miss Gina Osborne, whose mojo is off the charts. I really loved my discussion with Gina. I, I think you guys will too. So sit back, relax, and try to clear your mind of the madness of the day and listen to a woman who has definitely made the world a better, safer place. I'll see you on the back end with a little wrap-up and the perfect mad quote. Enjoy. Gina, welcome to Mojo Girl Madness. Thank you, Mojo Girl. I am so excited that you're here. And I'm excited to tell everybody listening who Gina Osborne is, because I think Gina Osborne is a true superhero. And well, you are. I mean, listen to this brief bio. And this is just the highlights. Gina began her career in 1986 by enlisting in the U.S. Army. You were just a child back then, man, as a counterintelligence special agent. She served six years during the Cold War, working the highest profile espionage cases in the European theater. She was a Cold War American spy, okay? First of all, that's super cool. Ten years later, Gina became a special agent with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And over the next 22 years, she investigated organized crime, supervised counterterrorism investigations, and led numerous investigations relating to national security and criminal computer intrusions. She headed up the largest cyber and computer forensics program in the FBI and was often the highest ranking woman in the Los Angeles FBI office. Gina is an expert in navigating chaos, crisis, change, and a star on the public speaking circuit, where she provides her audiences with the tools and techniques to eliminate self-imposed obstacles Oh, we got to talk about that. Stop tolerating the intolerable, have the courage to lead authentically, and create the clarity and confidence to become unstoppable. You're going to have to let me know when you do a public speaking event next. I'll I'll slip in. Gina retired from the FBI two years ago to pursue a career in showbiz as a TV writer and host of her own hit true crime podcast called Behind the Crime Scene, which is a really great podcast. I'm a huge fan. You guys have to listen to it. We'll talk about that more later. Gina's on the board of directors for the Girl Scouts of Orange County and was also just last month named one of the 35 kick-ass women in OC by Orange Coast Magazine in Orange County, California. One of 35 in the whole county. Congrats on that. Thanks. She's also incredibly gorgeous. She's a tall blonde. You can see her photo on my website, mojogirlmadness.com. Scroll down on the homepage to the featured guest section. Just a stunning woman. Gina Osborne, welcome to Mojo Girl Madness. Thank you so much. So let's start at the beginning. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? I am a true blue Orange County girl. I was born in Orange. I grew up in Orange County and I've been here pretty much my whole life outside of my six years in the Army when I was in Europe and about 18 months that I served in Washington, D.C. for the FBI. Wow. So you went to school out here? I did. I went to school out here for my first two years, and then I finished my education with the University of Maryland um, when I was in the Army. 
Nice, nice. And brothers, sisters? One sister. I won't tell you if she's older or younger because that's our (laughs) thing. We like to uh, make people guess. Keep it vague. Nobody needs to know. Exactly. Especially in Tinseltown. So tell us about your years as a spy. You must have been quite the movie star character as a 20-something tall blonde. Did you like wear a trench coat with the collar up and a fedora and sunglasses and everything? Uh, maybe the sunglasses, no fedora <laughs> and no trench coat. Uh, I was in Belgium and Germany. That's where I was assigned. And it was really kicked up when I was in Germany. It was the end of the Cold War. I'm going to date myself a little bit. It was the decade of the spy, which was the 80s. And uh, I was really fortunate to be selected to be on this specialized team that every time there was a major espionage case going on within Europe, this team would get called out and we would investigate it. So I was very fortunate to be on the road probably 10 months out of the year as a 20-something-year-old out driving in Audis and Mercedes and BMWs and being undercover, an amazing dream come true. Nice. So tell me, were there any compromising situations? Were you ever in danger? Um, You know, the danger thing, we were trained really well. So uh, I think I was in a pretty bad car accident. Um, we were on this one case, which was the Albert Sambalay case. That was during Desert Shield, Desert Storm, when a U.S. Army specialist was trying to sell sensitive information to the Jordanians. And so we were on that case probably three to four months. And uh, it, that was kind of the craziest case. I was in a car accident. I sprained my ankle. One of our team members was doing surveillance on the Belgian-German border when the Pulitzer saw him getting out of his car to go into the forest, and they sent border guard dogs after him. So he was chased by border guard dogs. Oh, my God. And that just so happened to be my husband. So for about three hours, I thought he had been (gasps) shredded by border guard dogs. So a whole lot of things happened. But the most exciting thing was uh, I was across the street from Albert's house when he got arrested. We did a sting operation. He went into a hotel room. We had a counterintelligence agent who was pretending to be a Jordanian official. And he signed his life away and he wanted to be a spy and, uh, and pretty much sold his soul. And then he drove home and he was arrested right before my eyes. So it was pretty amazing. Wow. That, I mean, I can't even imagine what, what an experience, what a life, the, the tension that, that we deal with day to day. And then you're in a situation like that, much less on another continent in another country. It's crazy. Good times, good times. And I also had the bomb holder SWAT team called out after me. And uh, they, someone had seen or reported that they saw a blonde, a woman in a blonde wig taking pictures of a military installation. And so uh, they called out the SWAT team. This was during the war. And so, yeah, I had to run from that. But uh, yeah, that, that, that'll go in the book. <laughs> were you really incognito or, were, or did they just we, think that you must have been? Uh, we were, we were all, well, I was taking pictures of Albert Sambale in bomb holder. And so someone just thought because we were at war, somebody was taking pictures of the military installation, maybe to do a terrorist attack or something like that. So yeah, they took it very, very seriously. But luckily, we got out of town before uh, they stopped us. Because if they would have stopped us, 
We had hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of technical equipment, surveillance equipment, oh my God. night vision goggles, all of those things in the trunk of our car. So that would not oh my God. very you, good if You we would got not stopped. be on this podcast today if they had stopped exactly. you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> wow. So do you have a favorite experience? Um, I would say that was pretty much it. Just having the opportunity because before I went into the army, I was a cocktail waitress. I love uh, it. I did that too. Yes, exactly. So I worked at a comedy club in Orange County called The Laugh Stop. (laughs) Love it. And uh, so, yeah, so I just, I mean, would pinch myself every day to, because I went from that to chasing spies across Europe. It was really amazing. So where did you get the idea to actually do this and to enlist in the army after you've been a cocktail waitress? I I mean, did you always know you wanted to do something like this? Well, I always wanted to be an international woman of intrigue. That was always my goal. And Mission you know, accomplished, my dear. Mission <laughs> thank accomplished. You. Thank you. Well, and I always wanted to be a writer. When I was in junior high school, I used to write Laverne and Shirley and Happy Days episodes <laughs> for fun. And I would get so excited because I would put them in an envelope and send them to Paramount Pictures, and then their legal department would send them back, saying (laughs) that they didn't accept unsolicited material. So I got my rejection early in life from Hollywood. I love that, but... I, when I was doing a little research on your background, I mean, we know each other pretty well, but I had never heard the MASH story because oh you were gosh. a big fan of MASH and you wrote yes. a script for MASH and you were like a teenager. Can you tell everybody what you did with that script and what happened? Oh my gosh. Do not do this now because there's no. a lot more security <laughs> now than there was back when I was 16 years old. So I had actually written a feature film And I love the show MASH, and I was absolutely just amazed by Alan Alda. I mean, he would Mm -hmm. write, he would direct, he would star in the show, and so I wanted him to be my mentor. So I, of course, you know, I couldn't, I had to have a way to get onto the set, so I went to a flower shop, I bought some flowers, I drove them up to 20th Century Fox, told the gate guard I had flowers for Alan Alda, and surprisingly... They let me in and uh, I walked onto the set and I handed (laughs) them to him (laughs) and he was so kind and so generous and he gave me some really great advice. He said, go out and get some experience if you want to be a writer. And so I did that three times and he was gracious and lovely with me. You took flowers back three times? Yes, I did. Oh my God. I did. I love that. (laughs) Now, as an adult, have you ever reconnected? Did you ever reconnect with him? You know what? I would love to because... Oh, anybody that's listening to this that may have a connection, you know, one degree of separation in Hollywood, let me know because I think Alan would be very, very proud of what you've done with your life. Oh, well, thank you. Well, he told me, go out and get some experience. And I was (laughs) I just so happened to be also very, very interested in what was going on with the Cold War, anything related to the CIA or the KGB or the GRU, I was just absolutely fascinated with the former Soviet Union and the war that was, you know, this Cold War that was going on. Mm. And so I decided, okay, if I want to be a CIA operative, then I would have to have a four-year degree and I would have to have a sense of adventure. And I had the sense of adventure. I didn't have the four-year degree. And so I was two years into college and I was sitting in the college library where a young man came up to me and he started telling me about the army's counterintelligence program. And so I listened and he told me I can Mm. get my degree. I could live in Europe. I could wear civilian clothes. I could live in condos. So it was kind of like a private Benjamin type scenario. 
And the next day, uh, I put on a black and white polka dotted dress and a fuchsia hat. It was the <laughs> 80s. And I went down to the Army recruiter, and they thought I was absolutely nuts. And I took the test and scored really high. And about eight months later, I was in basic training at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, eating dirt. Oh. That's how my, uh, my Army career began. Oh, my God. You really were like a Private Benjamin. It was. In fact, Private Benjamin in the movie, she was assigned to Belgium. And I, my first assignment was in Belgium. So, yeah, we were two Private Benjamins. Okay, well, if anybody has connections to Goldie Hawn, I mean, you can also <laughs> throw her our way. <laughs> oh, my God. So then you spent how long uh, in the Army as a, as a spy? Just under six years. Okay, and then you transitioned from that into the FBI? Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Was that... Was that an, I mean, was that like a logical, easy transition? How did you get into doing that? Well, I thought, you know, I wanted to stay in the States because I had lived overseas. I wanted to be near my family. And when I went into the FBI, I went through Quantico. Um, I think it was 15 and a half weeks back then. And mm-hmm. um, I got to my first assignment, which just so happened to be in Orange County, the Santa Ana Resident Agency. I was very, very fortunate. My three roommates at Quantico wound up going to do New York, and I got to go home. My first arrest was across the street from my high school, so oh. I, I lucked out on that. That's amazing. Yeah, and they gave me, uh, they assigned me to the counterintelligence squad, but the, and that made sense because I had all this great counterintelligence background. And then my boss came up and we also did civil rights on that case. So Mm -hmm. he dumped a civil rights case on my desk and it was where Thai girls were being brought into the United States and forced into prostitution. So it was an involuntary Mm -hmm. servitude case. And they were doing this in Little Saigon, which is a district in Orange County, which houses the largest population of Vietnamese people outside of Vietnam. So Mm -hmm. I, I, went over to the Westminster Police Department because I figured they would know what's going on as far as this Asian prostitution because I knew nothing about that. I knew nothing about Asian organized crime. And uh, I wound up on a task force at the Westminster Police Department in their basement working Asian organized crime for five years. Wow. Wow. Yes, and let me tell you, I I fit in much more as a big blonde in Germany than I did in (laughs) Little Saigon. I was going to say... I mean, and you also, you kind of defy the stereotype of the classic FBI agent, other than you have perfect posture. I mean, (laughs) it's, I mean, we don't normally think of like the tall, gorgeous blonde who's very feminine. You're like me. We're girly girls. You know, we wear makeup, we do, we do our hair and we both work in, you know, male dominated professions. Was it difficult for you, like being true to yourself and, do you have any advice for women in the workplace who are in that type of a situation where they're working with mostly men and, and in a leadership position, no less? You, you probably oversaw a lot of men as you, as you worked up. I did. I did. You know, I think my, my dad was a Marine. And so, and he wanted boys. Both my sister and I had boys' names before we were born. He was expecting to have boys. And so he kind of raised us like boys. And my parents split up and my mom, she went out and she whipped the world in real estate. So I got to see, you know, a strong female role model. And then, you know, my dad, he still had us doing, you know, working out and stacking bricks for during the summers and <laughs> junkyard. So, so yeah, I, I think it just came naturally. And I, you know, I, 
as I am a Barbizon School of Modeling graduate, circa uh, 1979. I did John Roberts Powers when I was okay. like 13. Because <laughs> okay. my, my sister was a model. She was like, she's like your height. And, you know, she was really pretty. And, and, and she was younger. And so I think my mom thought, oh, well, we'll throw, we'll throw Kathleen a bone and let her go to John Robert Powers. I was by far, you know, uh, not the model type. But it was fun. It was like an etiquette school. Yep, yep. And you learn how to put on makeup. And I was wearing makeup. My first sergeant used to chase me down when I was in training and uh, at Fort Huachuca, the intelligence school, because I would wear red lipstick with my battle dress uniform. I so. love that so much. I remember when I first started as a member of the Directors Guild, when I um, was just a, a DGA trainee, uh, training on film sets to become an assistant director, uh, a really tough job. And you're out in the trenches for 12, 14 hours a day like yours and working with a lot of men. And I remember being told in one of our trainee seminars, you can't wear makeup. You can't do your nails. You can't look like you care about how you look. You got to be one of the guys. And I had a real identity complex. Like it was, I didn't know who to be, you know, and I've overcome that obviously. And finally, when I learned to like, you know what, I'm just going to be myself and you got to be authentic and you'll enjoy life more. But it was really tough when I first started. Yeah, I didn't know how to present myself. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think when I got into the FBI, it would take me two hours to get dressed for a search warrant because I didn't want to seem too feminine. I didn't want to seem too masculine. You know, so back in I know in the, exactly what you mean. Right, right. So you, I, I wanted to fit in, but... You know, I was always, I, I was the only woman and the only FBI agent on the Westminster Task Force, this Asian Organized Crime Task Force. So, you know, I'm surrounded by men and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and half of them hated the FBI. So I was kind of fighting that fight on top of, you know, being the, the only woman in mm. the room. But I think you just work hard and you do your job and you don't have to be perfect. You don't yeah. have to, you know, you just, I, to me, I've learned as the years have gone by is that, you know, the, it's the imperfections that make us extraordinary. Absolutely. And if you can just embrace those things, then you're going to, you're going to be a much better leader more authentic. And it doesn't, I mean, I wore four inch heels my entire FBI career. I was just going to say, I love that you wear, cause I've met you for dinner, like after work and you've got heels on and the, and the skirt or that, you know, you look gorgeous. And I also wear heels, even when I'm on the set, not if I'm out on location, but if I'm on a soundstage, I like a little height, you know, yeah. I'm in a leadership position. I don't want to get lost in the mix. And, yeah. you know, plus i you know, I got back issues and wed- I usually wear wedges and, you know, but I like three or four inches and, yeah, sure. you know, you know, screw I'm the with haters. You, sister. Yeah. I'm with you. For absolutely. Sure. As far as working in the male dominated uh, field, I was, I've been told that I look more like a Mary Kay agent than an FBI agent. I was told that the guys felt, didn't feel comfortable with me around because they couldn't talk the way that they wanted Ugh. to talk or they normally talked when I wasn't around. So I had to endure certain things like that, but there, that was far and few between just because, I mean, I was sort of a ball buster and I was yeah. out there and I was making cases and doing my thing. And, uh, it's kind of, you know, they could criticize me all day long, but I was doing my job and I was doing it well. So yeah, it matter. absolutely. Sometimes I feel like we have to do it even better just because we're always being tested. But I mean, I don't think that either one of us were disregarded in the workforce, but 
how did you deal with people who perhaps disrespected you or continued to test you? You know, it depended where I was. I mean, I was an executive with the FBI 11, gosh, even more than that, probably the last 13 years of my career. Mm. And I was in charge of cyber and computer forensics the last 11 years. And so I really learned, I I had to change my leadership style um, because I had cyber people and I'm not a tech person. So Mm -hmm. I really had to figure out how to get them to follow me as a leader. Um, But I had very high standards when it came to representing our program, representing the FBI, you know, representing ourselves in an honorable manner. And whenever people would test the boundaries, um, we'd have a chat. And if they did it again, they'd, uh, they'd be temporary. They temporarily assigned someplace else. Did you ever have anybody hit on you? Oh, gosh. You know, if I had a dime for every time uh, people (laughs) thought that I was having some sort of affair with somebody I was talking to who just so happened to be male, uh, I'd be a very rich woman right now. So that kind of came with the territory. Yep. Yep. I get that. Handling all the stress, dealing with the crime, the chaos, the awful people. Did, Did you ever, did it ever take its toll on your psyche working all those FBI cases? And, you know, it, it's interesting. 9-11 really changed the FBI. I mean, before that, working Asian organized crime, I mean, it was all violent crime, mostly violent crime, where you would have murder for hires, you'd have um, extortion, loan sharking. So Mm. there was always somebody being threatened, some, you know, drive-by shootings, home invasion robberies, things like that. Mm. But, you know, 9-11 really changed things because that was the first catastrophic event that I had to deal with. And then I got into the terrorism side. So there was always when I was working terrorism after 9-11, I mean, everything was an emergency because we couldn't allow another 9-11 to happen. So Mm -hmm. I kind of got good at responding to crises and, uh, and you just kind of get used to it after a while. Mm -hmm. I can totally see that you've just got such a command and such a calmness about you. I bet you just rarely get flustered. Uh, every now and again, every now and again, I will. If they deserve it. If they, <laughs> if they want to, my, 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 uh, executive assistant, uh, used to warn people do not poke the bear today. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I love that. I love that. I remember when we first met, do you remember that? I, I was the first day we met out at the school in Inglewood. It probably was. Yeah. Because yeah. I think I was a dream speaker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I've mentioned in previous episodes that I ran the Eye of a Dream Foundation in Los Angeles and worked with a lot of, uh, it's an educational foundation, worked with a lot of um, at-risk kids, and we adopted classes. And I started that, uh, that was my idea, the Dream Speaker Program, where we had people come in and talk about their life, talk about their career, give life lessons to the kids. I got to tell you, yours was not only, I mean, I would expect nothing less of you. It was the most organized. You had it all planned out. It was so clear. And it was truly the most interesting one I I ever sat in on. And I still remember you telling the kids about the internet and don't believe everything you hear on the internet. And they were looking at you like, what? Things on the internet aren't real? What? Wikipedia isn't necessarily like a real encyclopedia that's all real and factual? 
Yes, and I think they were, were they middle schoolers? I remember, yeah. or sixth graders? Mm-hmm. I remember telling... That particular telling, class, yeah. Yeah, yeah. don't take uh, pictures with your clothes off. I think that was one of my other oh. big... <laughs> oh, my God. And let's hope that they listened, although yeah. you never know. Yeah, yeah. But I was so impressed because you laid it all out for them and you talked about your whole journey and and it really was, you've got such such life lessons that other people need to hear. Thank you, thank you. And speaking of other people hearing, you've um, you've been like a real hit on the public speaking uh, circuit and coaching. And what what are your most requested topics when you go in and speak somewhere? Well, I, I help people navigate chaos, crisis, conflict, and change. And that's so big going on right now. I'm actually in everyone's working, lives. Exactly. And I'm working on a book about it just to help people do that. And, you know, we, it seems like even before the pandemic, it just being a woman, you have to take care of your home. You have to take care of work. You have to take care of kids. You have to take care of older parents, there Mm -hmm. are so many things that we have to take care of. And in not leaving enough time for ourselves, you know, chaos is kind of invited into our life. And so it's chaos, living in chaos has kind of been the norm, because how many times do you hear people say I'm swamped, Mm -hmm. or I'm too busy, or, you know, I'm just jammed on, I've got so much stuff going on. Overwhelmed, overwhelmed is a a word I use quite often. Exactly, exactly. But if you look, if, if we can prioritize what's important in our lives, and stick to those priorities, and we can stop tolerating things, whether it's tolerating behavior from others, tolerating behavior toward ourselves by ourselves, um, you know, any tolerances that that we allow into our lives, the leaky faucet, uh, you know, the boxes in the garage, all of those things sort of add up. And then when you're living a chaotic lifestyle, it just makes it worse. So what I like to tell people is identify what you're tolerating and try to eliminate those tolerations so mm-hmm. you can make some room in your mm-hmm. life where the chaos doesn't have to be so overwhelming. Yeah. I remember after after my mom died, this was a, a quite a while ago, My um, I saw a therapist for the first time in my life and um, just to help me deal with it. And and I was feeling overwhelmed with stuff. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of the business of death and then the aftermath. It's it takes its toll. And and he said, I want you to go through your home, through your life and make a list of 50 things that you can fix. And it's everything from like, like you said, the leaky faucet, the boxes that are the, the photo albums, the whatever it was back then. And he said, I want you to knock those off and it's going to start clearing your mind slowly. And it, and it really was a really good exercise just to get all those little nagging things that are in the back of your head off your plate. And, and he also said, and I want you to focus on you. I want you to make sure you do things to pamper yourself because you have to realize that you deserve it. And I think a lot of times as women, we tend to take care of everything else and we're nurturers and we, you know, we're, we're good organizers and, and list makers and we get everything done. And then usually last on the list is us getting a massage or us taking ourselves out or us meditating or spending time with ourselves and uh, reaching out to friends and loved ones. And and that's something that actually makes you feel so much less overwhelmed. Yes. 
And we don't want to teach another generation mm. of the girls who come behind us mm-hmm. that this is normal, that right. it's normal for us to be responsible for the housework when two people are working. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, you know, no, there's no helping, you know, having a husband or a, or a spouse helping you with the housework. It's got to be sharing. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. exactly. So we don't want to teach our girls that this is the way life is supposed to be. This is the norm where we're just burning the candle at both ends and, uh, and we're just scattered. Yeah. Yeah. True words, true words. So, um, you've, you and I both actually, um, you've reinvented yourself quite a bit over the, the course of your life. And now you're doing a book. You're also going to be an author. I mean, damn girl. Do, do you have any big dreams left that things you want to accomplish? Yes. Well, when I left, <laughs> of yes. course I do. <laughs> you, I left the FBI. I mean, I, because I always wanted to write. And so you knew, you knew me while I was still in the FBI mm-hmm. and I was writing. I've written a pilot. You've read my pilot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I it's think good. Liked She's my a good pilot. writer, you guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, uh, you know, I've got a manager and I'm working um, with a production company right now on a television show. And I just want to be able to tell my stories because I've got so many stories and I want to tell the stories from the point of view of a woman in Mm -hmm. law enforcement and all the things that that we deal with. And it's not just, oh, my gosh, it's so hard. You know, men don't take us seriously, because that's not the story. That's not, that's certainly not my story, but there are just so many really good stories that I I feel that I want to tell based on my experiences that will inspire people. I totally get that. It's kind of why I wanted to do this podcast. I, you know, I started writing, but yeah, writing is a, is a discipline and it's easy to not be disciplined uh, in that arena for me. So, but I can always talk. So yeah, exactly. (laughs) And you're a very good talker. Thank you. Likewise. (laughs) Have you ever given up on a dream? Um, you know, I haven't usually, I mean, I I like to call myself an empire builder because I like to build things. Mm Mm-hmm. And I mean, there are things that have kind of, I'm very loyal to my dreams. Um, like I said, the, you know, this, my writing dream started, you know, probably, I think I started my first journal in the fifth grade or something like that. So I've, I've been a writer my entire life and, and that's, that's something. And I'll tell you, Hollywood is a hard place mm-hmm. and uh, I'm definitely pushing the boulder up the hill, but uh, that boulder is going to get there someday. But you've got such a great story. You're a great writer. You've, I mean, you're such a people person. I, I can't imagine that this chapter won't be as successful as all of your other ones. Thank you very much. We're, we're keeping our fingers crossed. Yes. So how about relationships along the way? Challenging? Challenging. Hmm. How do I answer this question when I don't like <laughs> to talk about my personal I know. Life? <laughs> I know. You haven't even uh, talked about it that much with me, you know, maybe yeah. over, over cocktails at Crustacean one night. I think, I think we got deep. God, I yes. hope Crustacean still exists. I hope all those restaurants we used to go to are still around after everything. We need to go get those garlic noodles from oh the Oh my God, if I never kitchens. have those garlic noodles again, I will be really, really upset. <laughs> I know. They have, uh, they, they have one down here in Orange County. A so I've, I've had those. Yeah, nice. I, I, it's, I don't know. I forget what it's called, but I think it's from the same, it's from the same company. Yeah. I think it started up in San Francisco. They have one. Yeah. Okay. Good stuff. 
Anyway, so so personal life. Personal life. Let's just say I'm at the point in my life where I enjoy companionship. It's a good thing. And it's so important to be with someone with whom you are compatible. So, yeah. Do you tend to like to spend all of your time with that person, as in living together, or do you like a little alone time? No, I don't think I'll ever get married again or live with anybody. (laughs) Yeah, me neither. I mean, I could see maybe living with someone, but I like my alone time. Yeah, You know, I like having a few, I mean, my guy and I worked it out. So he's like here four or five days a week. And then I have two or three days that are to myself. And that's absolutely perfect for me. I don't don't think I'll ever get married again either. We don't need to. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I I enjoy, I enjoy my writing. I enjoy Mm -hmm. my friends. I just, you know, having such, being in the FBI and I was just responsible all the time and I was carrying a gun all the time and I was you know, responsible for over a hundred people. And it was, it was just a lot because, you know, there was a lot of things going on. We were responsible for uh, the investigation for Sony pictures entertainment when it got hacked by North Korea. Wow. So you just never, I I got, I was one part of that hack. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a lot of people were. And so, um, you, you just always have to have the phone on you. So the last couple of years has been great. I haven't even had to watch the news if I didn't want to mm. watch. The what news. a treat. Yeah. So it's been liberating. I do miss the people. I do miss the, the, the leadership development that I used to do with my, my young supervisors. I mean, I think that's probably what I miss, uh, the most or the, the people and the opportunities to help people grow, planting the seeds with the young people. That's what I really enjoy. Oh, I love that. That's that's one thing that I miss about the nonprofit too, working with the kids. Yeah. And my kids were a lot younger than than the people you're talking about, but you know, I like helping people. Yeah. So, you know, when I did the nonprofit, I mentioned in an earlier pod that it really was an identity crisis for me because all of a sudden after my entire life in in you know, adult life in show business, all of a sudden I was running a nonprofit and asking people for money or or a house we could use for a fundraiser. And people just reacted to me differently. And it was, mm-hmm. it was really odd. And mm-hmm. do you tend to define yourself because you've had such powerful career positions? At, I mean, when you introduce yourself, is that something that, that you feel is presented to other people that you talk about? Is, is your career, has that been a major part of your identity and how you define yourself? You know, it's been interesting the last, probably the first year I was retired when I was all gung-ho, going to Hollywood meetings all the time, talking to people. And I, I didn't miss the responsibility that came with working with the FBI. But, you know, when you talk about identity, mm-hmm. I, I identified that's who I was. I mean, and, and the FBI isn't just a job, it's a calling. So that's yeah. what I did. So, um so yeah, there is a little bit of an identity crisis, probably a little bit after I retired, just trying to figure out who I am and, and what I'm, what, what my purpose is, because I always yeah. have to have a project or, or that's when I'm kind of in my, in, in my own crisis mode is when I'm not doing something meaningful in my head. So yeah, so I think, you know, just trying to figure out where I belonged in this whole system and what I had to offer. And uh, I, I finally figured that out, but it, it definitely took some time. I can totally relate to that. Having having a purpose in life and mm-hmm. feeling like you're here for a reason. 
Exactly. It's, yeah. It's, you know, because I work in freelance, so I'm not always working. So I've always tried to fill my downtime with things that made me feel worthwhile, you know, whether it was volunteer work or, um, or writing or now doing a podcast and, and it's, you know, having a purpose in life and, yes. and having a purpose yourself, not just having your purpose be taking care of other people, yes. you know, something that's yes. fulfilling. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I get that through being on the board of directors for the Girl Scouts of Orange County. That's that awesome. really is fun. And, and just watching these, the, this generation of young women coming up and the Girl Scouts really, I mean, it's a girl led, girl run organization where these young women are just unbelievable. I remember last year we had this thing called Voice for Girls and it's sort of a brunch and the girls are, you know, one girl is at each table and at our table, there was me, Mm-hmm. Another retired FBI agent who is a big wig over at Disney Studios right now, the former sheriff of Orange County, who is a woman, and you had these huge personalities, and we kind of did a, an exercise just with the table. And this uh-huh. young lady, who was probably 16 years old, she took charge of all of these women at the table. <laughs> and, you know, she told us what we were going to do, and she just organized the whole thing and told who to who to speak and all that. And and I was just so impressed with that. Well, that young lady just got into Harvard. Oh my so, God, that's, uh, that's awesome. She, <laughs> that's what she's doing. Another young lady that we, I was working, she's a big STEM gal, science, technology, engineering, and math. She's going to Stanford. I love that. I so, love that. Yeah, just to see, you know, these are the future leaders of America. So that's really fulfilling to me. Oh, and, and God, I hope so many more young girls get into the STEM area. It's, yes. I think women are really good in that. We, you know, we have minds that are, organized in that fashion for research and for even for math. I loved that stuff yeah, coming up. Yeah. I've, I always was, was great at math. I loved numbers. I do every morning I get up and I, and kind of my way of waking up in the morning over coffee is to do um, the Sudoku. Uh, okay. Yeah. So do Sudoku puzzles. I got a whole book of them and I do a couple of those to start my day. It kind of kicks off my brain and, and it's numbers and I love it. I love those more than like crossword puzzles. Sure. Well, they yeah. say that girls, by the time they're in the eighth grade, they either go towards STEM or they go away from it. That young, so, huh? That young. Yeah. So it's, it's so important to, to get our girls interested in that. And, you know, working cyber for the, you know, from for 11 years in the FBI, I was the only woman more often than not. In fact, uh. I didn't have a female squad supervisor. And that's someone who was in charge of a squad working for me until probably I think the last year or year and a half. Um, I was in that job for 11 years and I had Are all male kidding? supervisors. No, because they just, I, they're just, I mean, she was a unicorn to be a woman yeah. FBI agent because you know, there are so only less than 20% of the agents in the FBI mm. are women and probably maybe 2% of the agents working cyber are women. Mm. So when I got her, um, boy, oh boy, did she didn't, she didn't see it coming because I'd have her in my office. I wanted to download <laughs> everything in my brain into her brain. Carry on with this. Carry exactly. on. Exactly. And she was in her thirties and she would just sit there like a teenager would sit uh, on a couch listening to their parents. Can I go, can I go back to work, please? And, uh, so I got a call for, I didn't hear from her for a long time after I retired. And then she just called me within the last couple of months and she told me she wound up getting my old job. 
So, oh, uh, I love that. Yes. That's awesome. Yes. So, uh, so, so now she's that, bossing around the guys. <laughs> exactly. All that torture, all that torture that I, uh, that I imparted on her, it, uh, it paid off. Oh, that's so great. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of what you say rings true, even in, in my career path being, you know, there weren't the whole, there still aren't as, as many women directors as there should have been in 20 years ago, certainly, sure. you know, and yeah, I, I love that you've mentored women and that that's a passion of yours. I think so many women don't, they like, you know, even in their own profession, they like being the queen bee, the one, the, the woman who is the star of, of, of all of the women and mentoring is just so fulfilling and it's part of your legacy. You know, that, that woman is going to remember that young woman is going to remember you. She's going to talk about you. And I mean, I just think that's awesome. So well done. Well, that was, that was, and when I think back fondly of my, I mean, I had a lot of great experiences, but just having those young supervisors that I went through and I had many generations over 11 years, but planting the seeds and stretching them so they didn't feel comfortable so they would grow. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had all sorts of tricks up my sleeve uh, to torture my poor young supervisors. But, um, you know, now I've got one in London as an assistant legal attache. So, I mean, you are so right to mentor the people and especially for women to mentor mm-hmm. the women who are coming behind because uh, in, in the FBI, I mean, we weren't allowed to be, women weren't allowed to be FBI agents until J. Edgar Hoover died in 1972. And so wow. that, when you think about it, that wasn't really that long ago. And I was really fortunate when I got into the FBI, I had some of the first, I had the first woman assigned to the Los Angeles field office on my squad. And so she would tell me stories and, and, um, we had another lady who was a cop in the sixties and she would tell stories about how, uh, you know, they didn't (laughs) allow women to go on patrol back then. And then all of a sudden they decided, Hey, we're going to let women go out on patrol. So they didn't have pants for the women. They didn't have uniforms. So the women had to wear their desk uniform, which was a mini skirt. This is back in the 60s. And they would carry their guns in their purses and they would wear high-heeled shoes. And that's what they would wear on patrol. So these are the women. Like out walking the beat. That's what they would wear. Out walking the beat. Yep. And they would have to put their hands on people and they would have to do their jobs just like the men did. But they they were doing it in miniskirts back then. So those are the women who paved the way for me. So it's, it was my job to pave the way for the women who came behind me. Good for you for having that philosophy. You know, I, I, it just it made me think of something I heard. Did you know that women weren't allowed to wear pants on the Senate floor until 1989? Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I mean, I, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but I read that a while back and it just, it really struck me. It's, we still have a long way to go in this country, but, but thanks to know, people like you, it's changing. Well, but I'm a big believer, you know, when people talk about this is a this is a man's world, I never had that philosophy. I never did either. It was always my world. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely, man. It's like it's my world, welcome to my world and exactly. I am not operating by anybody else's rules and when I did, I was never happy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I but love that um, you named your production company when you got into showbiz, uh, your personal showbiz company, G-Girl Productions, at like the the female version of G-Men for the FBI agent nickname. I just, yeah. just like mine, Mojo Girl. I love that yeah. we call ourselves girls. I love being a girl. Yeah, I love being a girl. And you know what the interesting thing about that, especially when it comes to leadership, 
when you look at how we were young and we were mm-hmm. bossing people around. <laughs> and <laughs> everybody hated us and called us bitches <laughs> and whatever. They well, still do, I mean, but whatever. But when you but when you look at our leadership skills when we're girls, I mean we're collaborative or mm-hmm. you know, we show empathy, we listen, we have mm-hmm. good communication skills. And for us to go into these male dominated environments and try and be like men that's totally inauthentic and it just doesn't work because it's, and, and that's why sometimes we, you know, there's that imposter syndrome yep. going on because you're trying to be something that you're not. But as a woman, if you embrace the skills that you're good at, I mean, write down your leadership skills that you're good at and embrace those. And if you are a great communicator, I mean, I was great at networking because I love talking to people. You can mm-hmm. tell I love to talk. Mm-hmm. And, and that was one of my superpowers, which allowed me to build a $7 million state of the art forensics lab in Orange County because I had the relationships with all of the chiefs down here. And, um, that's because I'm a good communicator. That's because mm-hmm. I'm a good networker. And those are the, the skills that I embraced as a leader. I love that. I love that. I always think that one thing that girls more, they get it more now, but not when I was growing up. It's like team sports and stuff. You know, guys benefit from that so much that they build their networks. They have, you know, they learn how to lose, how to win, and they, you know, build those competitive skills. And girls were never like really encouraged to be competitive, you, you know, especially against the boys. And that always rang really false to me. I always, thought, you know what, there's, I'm just as good, if not better than a lot of them. So yeah, yeah. And and my watching my mom, I mean, she went from a housewife, she had been a housewife for 13 years. Mm -hmm. And she went before that she was a hairdresser at the Disneyland Hotel, when my sister (laughs) and I were born. (laughs) I love that. And, uh, and my dad left, and she had to, you know, she had a mortgage that she had to mm-hmm. pay. And so instead of going out and being a cocktail waitress or, or doing a, being a secretary, she decided, hey, I'm going to get into real estate. And it's like, okay, you're going to live and die by your commission. You've got two little girls at home. You know, how are you going to do that? So she had us mowing the lawn. You know, we got first thing to go was the gardener. So my sister and I were out there mowing the lawn. And in her first year, based on her leadership skills, because she was so good to her people, and this was back in the day in the 70s when houses were $40,000 a piece, she made the Million Dollar Club. So, you know, I wow. got to see my mom go out there and 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 do it her way. So, that's, you know, having that role model is so important. That's so important. There's a lot of similarities between your story and mine, except for my mom wasn't the big leader in the million dollar, but... She at when I was had the week of my sixth birthday, my parents were in the plane accident and my dad could never work again. Mm -hmm. And there was a long recovery period and she had to go back to college, get her teaching credentials, establish herself as a school teacher. She was a school teacher for 30 years. They ended up, you know, getting divorced. It's a long, you know, torrid story. But um, she had two little girls to take care of, too. And she pulled herself together and was able to do that. And I and I don't think I really recognized that strength like you were able to uh, until I was older um, mm-hmm. and realized that, my God, she did all of this when she was like 30. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. Crazy. Exactly. Exactly. I remember I was in the army and basic training and they had t- dragged me out of bed one night because the first sergeant's office needed to be painted. So there were probably four of us that had to spend all night long painting the first sergeant's office. I mean, this is how, this is how it was. 
And so I remember this one gal talking about this other soldier standing next to me as we're both painting, talking about the glass ceiling. And I'm like, what's a glass ceiling? You know, here I'm mm-hmm. 21 years old and I had never even heard of a glass ceiling before. <laughs> and so she goes on to tell me that, you know, it's a ceiling that women can't get past. And it's like, no, 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 that's not true. So I think if you subscribe to it, then you're allowing the obstacle to come into your way. But if you don't subscribe to it and you do your own thing and you get there no matter what, then you, you get there. So that's, that's how it works. I always saw that as kind of a, kind of a goal that I wanted yes. to get there and, and help smash it. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That, that's the one thing that I love. Tell me that I can't do something. Tell yeah, me no that kidding. I can't do something and watch. Just sit back. It might take me a while, but I'll do it. Same here. Tell me no. Go ahead. Yeah. Tell me no. <laughs> so speaking of tell me no, I told myself no on this podcast for so long. I was so afraid of putting myself out there, getting vulnerable and everything. Um, and I kind of envy your podcast because yours is very, you know, you're, you're talking about cases. You're not getting personal at all. Um, how has that podcast experience been for you? It's been good. So the podcast is called Behind the Crime Scene, a mm-hmm. true crime podcast. Mm-hmm. And we go beyond the yellow tape into the lives of first responders, investigators, and prosecutors who work true crime. And really, we we take some really, we've had really big cases. We've had the BTK uh, yeah. serial killer. Yep. Uh, we have the FBI agent who is in charge of that case. Uh, we just did McMillions. Um, season two just started this week. And if uh, anybody knows about the HBO show McMillions, we've got one of the FBI stars on the show talking about that. So, But really what I wanted to do was to humanize law enforcement. And I think now is a really good time for this podcast to be out just because one of the, the last question that I ask on, on each podcast is how did this case haunt you? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it really shows that the people who are out there on the streets working these big cases or even the small cases or, you know, going out to, on, on calls for the police department, um, it just humanizes them. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's really the story is just as much about them that it is about the case that they worked on the BTK uh, episode the um, the the FBI supervisor of that case, he talked about how when he was a little boy, he used to go out with his 10 year old cousins, and they would scare each other saying BTK is going to get you. And oh. then, you know, 20 something years later, he's in the FBI, and he's on he's in charge of the investigation that winds up uh, capturing BTK. So you it was know, really interesting. I didn't know too much about the BTK killer until because that was Kansas, right? Uh, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, until I watched the TV show Mind Hunter, have you seen that? Yes, yes, I loved it. And they had that running thing with BTK that kind of oh, I don't want to ruin it for anybody, but um, but fascinating, fascinating. So I ended up reading about it, and then I saw you did a, did a podcast about it, and it's really good. Thanks, thanks. Really good. So is the one I remember vividly, the East Bay Strangler, because I grew up in the East Bay. I had yeah. just moved down. I had moved down to LA a couple years before, but I remember my mom and my sister up there saying, oh my God, there's this East Bay Strangler. It's really horrible. What's going on? And and so I it brought back a lot of memories when I listened to that episode of your pod. Thanks. Well, one of my favorites is the Chester Turner case, because we have a forensic scientist on, and then we also have this amazing woman. Her name is Beth Silverman, and she's an LA deputy district attorney. And this woman has done seven serial killer trials. Oh, how <laughs> so. does she do that psychologically? It's like the things that she's seen and talked about. 
My God, that I, whew, that would really take a toll. Yes, yes. So my co-host, when I had a co-host back then, we just sat there and at the end of it, we were finished and recording and we said, we have got to have drinks with you. I lady. was going to say, <laughs> I need a drink. Yeah. Well, oh my we God. Need to, we need to meet her because we had never yeah. met her before, but she was our people, you know? I mean, we all, the, the three of us really bonded because it's like, you know, when you're in the trenches like that uh-huh. and, and that, I mean, to me... I don't like to watch scary movies. I don't, I mean, I don't want to cloud my mind now that I'm out of the FBI. I just want unicorns and cake pops. That's what I want right now. Cake pops. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's a really interesting one. If anyone wants to come in where you can listen to us through your favorite podcast provider behind. I love it. Well, I subscribe on several platforms. So yeah, I'm a fan. I also, I, I watch the Macmillan's, um, uh, on TV, the yes. um, multi-part, and I loved listening to you. And I remember that that detective that yeah. you had on the pod. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, the, and the whole case just, got, I mean, they spent so long on it, and it was such a big thing, and it was such a betrayal to, you know, to all the, the, the people that had been involved and had fun yeah. with it. it and yeah. and then they the case came to light, like, right when 9-11 hit. And so yeah. Yeah. nobody really knew about what happened yep. until this, until people like you and, and uh, I forget where Macmillan's was, HBO, something HBO. like that. Yeah. Um, until that aired and people were like, whoa, it's kind of vaguely rem- remember it, but um, yeah, it kind of got overshadowed by the current events back then. Oh, yeah. I remember collecting those uh, Monopoly pieces back in the day. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, McDonald's, French fries. You know, yes. they make the French fries different now than they used to. When I oh. was listening to Malcolm Gladwell talk about, he did like a whole thing on, on the McDonald's French fries and how in the early days when we were growing up, it's like they were so tasty, much more than they are now. And it's because they really like fried them in like the deep fried, you know, hamburger meat fat. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> and then they got they got shamed for it. And they had to stop doing that. But man, when we were kids, the McDonald's fries were were awesome. Oh, yeah, I took a gourmet cooking class. And you would be surprised at how much butter goes into anything gourmet. <laughs> Sticks I love butter. butter. Do you remember yes. that one that uh, Marie and Marie was that the one the uh, what was it the um, oh, oh, uh, Julia and Julia. Julia and Julia. That's yes. what I was when Marie yes. wanted to get that. Um, yeah. But how the butter was such a huge part of the French cooking. I gotta tell you, it's a, it's a big part of my cooking too. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm, I make, I put a half a stick of butter in my pancake batter. I love it. I always put extra <laughs> butter in my chocolate chip cookie mix too because oh, it makes them, go. oh, it's so good. It's so good. Yeah. No carbs, extra butter. There you, you know? go. Yeah, hold the carbs, just add the butter. <laughs> so is there anything about your life and career, any stories you want to tell that we haven't touched on? Anything you thought we'd talk about that we haven't? Gosh, well, I think, you know, the the funnest times was when I was on the task force in Westminster, because um, just working, I was on the street all the time. And we just had so many interesting cases. We had one case where um, the leader of the Pomona boys gang, uh, uh, one of his guys got shot in a cafe and we had a a wire tap up on the leader of the Pomona boys gang. And so he was trying to get a gun so he can exact revenge on the person who did the shooting. 
Mm. So I hear that. And now I am responsible for that person's life because the FBI. Oh my God. No pressure or anything. (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, we were listening all day. We're out on surveillance all day. Everything, you know, all hands were on deck, you know, because we can't let somebody get killed today. And I'm in charge of this case. And so, you know, he's going around. He found a guy up in San Jose and he got him to bring a gun down. And so now it's midnight and we know that the victim is at the Commerce Casino in, in Los Angeles. And then we hear, we, we, we see the guy from San Jose coming into town. We see him check into a motel right across the street from where um, the, the suspect lived. Mm. And then you hear on the phone, okay, I'm just going to go to sleep. And we're like, huh, that's weird. So we're all kind of fighting over, okay, who's (gasps) going to be here all night? (laughs) Just talking amongst ourselves. And then the next thing you know, we see the guy in the hotel coming to his car, going across the street. (gasps) Had he figured out that he was being tapped? Uh, no, 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 they didn't. But uh, just in case they were, that's, that's what their, uh, that's what their strategy was. But we were still out there and we saw him getting in the car. So one of my best moments, in addition to watching Albert Sambalay get arrested, mm-hmm. was when this Pomona Boys gang member was on the 22 freeway and get stopped by the Westminster Police Department and proned out on the 22 freeway. So, uh, And there was a gun with them. So he was on his way out to kill somebody. So I wow. think my time there, I really felt that I, I made a difference. And so that uh, was Yeah, that you was saved fun. somebody's life proned out on the 22 freeway yeah. well, as, par- he, as he should be. Yeah. Well, my partner, we were, we were pretty well known because you can't be a big blonde in little Saigon without everybody knowing you. And right. my partner at the Westminster police department, he was an older gentleman. He was probably our age, Katie now mm-hmm. <laughs> back then, which was senior to me for some reason. Yeah. And, and he and I argued all the time because he thought he knew everything. Cause he only had like 30 years law enforcement experience. And you know, me with my six years law enforcement experience thought I knew everything. So we just had that kind of banter back and forth. And so one time we went out to a Vietnamese cafe to arrest somebody and that person wasn't there. So we left. And so uh, next thing you know, we're sitting in the basement of the Westminster Police Department and my partner, Tommy, gets a phone call from the owner of the cafe. And she said, what were you doing here? Huh. And he said, well, how did you know it was me? And she said, well, the, well, my sister said it was the old guy and the blonde. And the blonde. And- <laughs> I love it. So, so apparently that's what, uh, that's what we were called there in Little Saigon. The old guy and the blonde. Oh, it's- my God. That, and he was like our age now. I know. Oh, that's, I that's know. frightening. I, I don't like this old. No, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I'll get old in like 20 years. That's, 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 that's my timeline. And there even then... You know, yeah, senior. I don't know. I don't know. We're not there yet. No, we're not. We're not. We don't even look like we're even close. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Just ask us. <laughs> yeah. I. I mean, but that's like crazy. I have a good day, and it's because you know we shot something cool. You have a good day, and it's because you saved somebody's life. I mean, that's insane. It's it just gives us perspective in showbiz. It's not brain surgery. We're not curing cancer. I used to have a boss that would walk around and whenever somebody would get tense on set, he'd just walk by and go, and this was during during the war in the in the Balkans. He'd say, he'd say, Bosnia, Bosnia, just to remind us, we could be elsewhere in this world. Yeah. And we are now on a on a set and we are making movies or TV shows and entertaining other people. 
And yeah. but you look know, what you did. I mean, you told so many good stories and entertained so many people for so many years, and you continue to do that. So I have a lot of respect for you for doing that. I try. It's a team effort. I've worked with some wonderful people and hope to continue to do so when all the madness is over. I don't yes. know. Being on a set right now, though, it's crazy. Hard time to make comedy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I can only imagine. Yeah. So because this is a mad pod, is there anything in particular other than, you know, the state of the world and the country making you mad these days? You know, I am, I I don't really let it get to me because I don't, if I watch the news whenever I feel like watching the news and when it gets too much, I just turn it off. You know, the same thing with social media all we can do is just be kind to each other. I think mm-hmm. that's the most important thing. And, and that's another way to navigate chaos and conflict and change. If that's the first thing on your mind is that we just need to take care of each other because we are all hurting as a mm-hmm. result of everything that's going on. You know, people are losing their family members and just the world can seem, this country can seem so divisive. It's just important to just sort of walk in other people's shoes and, and have a lot of gratitude. That's yeah. what's so important right now. One of the podcasts, I don't know if you heard the Samantha Runyon one, where this five-year-old mm-hmm. little girl was kidnapped and sexually assaulted and Ugh. strangled. And her mother, uh, I, re- I, w- I was at the command post you know, back in 2001 when they found her body. And I would see her mother on television and it just broke my heart. So now, you know, fast forward almost 20 years and we're, you know, need to invite this woman, Erin Runyon, the mother onto our show. And both my co-host and I were kind of scared because how do you speak to someone who has gone through true crisis mm-hmm. and tragedy? And so coming, you know, she went on instead, you know, I, I wouldn't have been able to have gotten out of bed, but you know, her, her message was, you know, Samantha fought all the way to the end, and she had mm. courage. That's her daughter. And the least I could do is go to trial every day and have the courage to face the man who killed my daughter. And then mm. she went on to create the, um, the the Joyful Child Foundation. So, you know, it's just you really have to put things in perspective, like you were saying. It's so important to realize that, you know, if we're healthy, if we have friends, if we have a roof over our head, if we have food to eat, I mean, let's be grateful for the things grateful. that we do have because, uh, yeah, because um, there are so many others who, who don't have what we have. Yeah, I remember hearing that a while back, What you know, if you keep a gratitude journal, if you think of things, 10 things that you're grateful for, even the little things before you go to bed, you'll sleep better. And, and you know, you think that's all hooey, but I got to tell you, it's kept me going. I'm very, very grateful, especially now with all the horrible things happening out there, people losing their homes, their, their jobs, their, I mean, their bank accounts, their, their lives. And just to be grateful that, you know, there, but for the grace of the universe, you know? Oh yeah. And what's frustrating to people is they feel like they're in a holding pattern. So Mm -hmm. my advice when I go out and speak, and this is what I'll say in the book is that just keep a list of the things that you do every Mm -hmm. day. So you can review those at the end of the day or whenever you're feeling like you're in this holding pattern, you can see that you are making progress every day. That's so important. That's really good. That's really good. What did I accomplish today? I remember when I was a kid, I, I don't know where I heard this, but it's like, as long as you accomplish one thing every day, and that's kind of like, 
stuck in my brain since then. Yeah. Accomplish one thing. And it's like, well, and it doesn't count to say, well, I got out of bed. You know, (laughs) (laughs) you're recording a podcast today. Exactly. You look fabulous today. Thank you. Thank you. You do too. I mean, how could you not? Come on. I so look forward to when we can get together in person, man. I do too. (sighs) Yeah. Two, uh, two, two big haired blonde ladies out out on the loose. That's kind of, that's kind of troubling when you think about it. You know what? Not to me. We're dangerous. (laughs) We're dangerous. So what are you madly in love with right now? Oh my gosh. Um, you know, being creative, um, that, that I uh, just, that is such, I'm addicted to that. So when I'm writing or when I'm collaborating with somebody, you know, just to sit around and talk about people who don't exist and creating characters and what are they going to do next? And who are these people? I mean, to me, you know, when you're sitting in one of those meetings as someone who, worked for the federal government for 28 years. (laughs) You don't really have those conversations, but I'm in awe of that because it just, it just hits a place in me. It reminds me of how I felt when I was writing the Laverne and Shirley and the happy days episodes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I get that same feeling in my gut that this is awesome. You get in the zone, you get in the zone and you feel those juices flowing. It's great. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I'm, I'm madly in love with that. And writing the book, I'm madly in love with, with because it's going to help so many people um, get through chaos, conflict, and change, and, and really become unstoppable. And that's really the theme of the book is becoming unstoppable. And if anybody wants to get on the advanced list for that mm-hmm. book, they can go to Gina L. Osborne, O-S-B-O-R-N.com, and sign up for to be on the list, and I will send you updates. Gina L. Osborne. No E at the end. No E at the end. Dot com. Dot com. Yes. And please reach out to me because I love to hear from, from people and, uh, and I also do coaching. So if anybody uh, needs to chat with me and, uh, I'm, I'm here to help. I'm definitely here to help. And she's really good at that. And she has a really great pod behind the crime scene. Yes. And and you just launched your new season, which is great. I listened to that opening episode. It was great. And it's wherever you get your podcast, just like Mojo Girl Madness. We're both on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, everything. So uh, let's subscribe to both. And Gina Osborne, I can't wait to talk to you again. Thank you, doll. I'd love to come back. Oh, my God, you will for sure. For sure. This has just been so wonderful. I feel so empowered just talking to you. You're inspiring, you're motivating, and thank you so much for being on Mojo Girl Madness. Thank you. Okay. I'll talk to you soon. (laughs) Garlic noodles forever. That's right. (laughs) And we're back. I hope you loved that discussion as much as I did. What a life she's had. And I know Gina has a few more surprises in store for us in the coming years. Gina made me think, probably because I feel like she and I are quite similar in many respects. Do you ever wonder about the life paths not chosen? The roads you didn't take? I think back on my own choices and where I came from. I took that ASVAB test Gina mentioned. I took it in high school, the Armed Service Vocational Aptitude Battery. I scored a 98, which is pretty good. Look it up. 
That score meant my mom was getting phone calls from high-ranking army officers wanting me to enroll in ROTC in college. When the officers would ask to speak to me, I refused. I scoffed. The army? Me? Are you kidding? Nope. I had my sights then set on a career as a lawyer and thought, I never would have fit in in the army. But, well, Gina did. Gina's dad was a Marine. Mine was an Air Force captain. And I guess I did end up in a career with a similar hierarchical system where leadership skills usually move you up, especially in production, film and TV production, where we even use military time, a pyramid structure of network, studios, production companies, then executive producers, then producers, director, assistant directors, then the various department heads, then their teams, all reporting upwards, but having their own unique contributions. Probably more similarities between showbiz and the military than you would think, actually. Two of my fondest career memories, in fact, I can credit to my early years of a military upbringing. They're both from my years on Frasier and involve our beloved creator and executive producer, David Angel, who, along with his lovely wife, Lynn, were on Flight 11, the first airplane that flew into the Twin Towers. That first career memory with David Angel was when we were on set and in the middle of one of our run-throughs where we would show the writers the show we'd been rehearsing on stage all day. I was the assistant director on this particular episode, and part of my job was to move things along and guide everyone from set to set. As I was doing this, David said to me, with a smile, as he never meant anything to be derogatory, he was a lovely, lovely man. He said, I heard you were a military brat. That explains so much. (laughs) Okay. Then, not long later, we were at a premiere party for, I think, season seven of Frasier at Luke's restaurant in Hollywood, a big fancy to-do. As we were all saying goodnight, David gave me a big bear hug and said, You are our rock. He kind of shook my shoulders as he said it. That meant so much to me. That moment probably kept me going through some pretty tough times on that show. I don't know if I would have had the courage to do the amazing things Gina has done in her career, but I think maybe... And I wonder what would have happened if I had spoken to that officer back in high school. Next season on Mojo Girl Madness, by the way, one of my story times will involve 9-11 and how that day went down on Frasier before, during, and after we found out we had lost two treasured members of our family. Before I wrap this episode up, though, I want to also explain that term that Gina and I discussed, because I don't think we really elaborated on it. STEM. There's also STEAM. So for those who aren't sure, STEM programs are science, technology, engineering, and math. And as those programs evolved, sometimes the word A would be added to make the acronym STEAM, the A being for arts, humanities, linguistics, visual arts, design, new media, etc. Moms and dads, if you want to ensure the best odds that your child has a solid career future, one that utilizes their unique gifts, which ultimately will be fulfilling for them. Stress the importance of exploring STEM and STEAM early on and encourage your girls. 
I was never encouraged in that direction. And in my early years, I wanted to be an astrophysicist. I really did. Then a veterinarian. I excelled in science and math and was always fascinated by linguistics. I still am, but was never encouraged in those areas. I was a girl. Who knows what would have happened if if I had been encouraged? I often wonder. I mean, I have zero complaints with my journey through life. But I have often thought that maybe, maybe I could have done more impactful work for the world. So don't just you be authentic. Allow your children to be to explore, to grow in the direction of their passions and gifts. Let them be fearless with their choices. The world would be such a better place if more of us were allowed to cast aside societal norms and be the best of who we are. Maybe, maybe your daughter will grow up to be the next Gina Osborne, international woman of intrigue. We're at the end of this one, Mojos. So that means it's mad quote time. I'll be short and very sweet. The words are from Frederick Douglass. And if you don't know who Frederick Douglass is, then shame on you and you need to look him up now. Frederick Douglass, a man whose fearlessness, courage, and intellect surpassed most of his contemporaries, said, I prefer to be true to myself, even at the hazard of incurring the ridicule of others, rather than to be false and to incur my own aberrance. Far be it for me to explain Frederick Douglass's wise words, but to put them another way, let me give it a shot. Be you. Fuck the naysayers. You'll have a happier life if you're true to yourself. <laughs> I think that kind of captures it in a, in a mojo girl way. It's been fun, fellow mojos. Tune in next time for another story time. This coming one in the next episode describes in depth the day I got my fucking mojo back it's uh it's pretty raw so you don't miss an episode please don't forget to hit that subscribe follow favorite button and please share the show so we can grow our mojo community if you've got a question comment guest recommendation if you want to be a guest yourself email me I am mojogirl at gmail.com Also, new feature alert. Text the word madness to 42828. And I'll occasionally send a little mojo to your inbox. I mean, don't our inboxes always need a little mojo? Text madness to 42828. Love you madly. Mojo Girl Madness is produced by Morgan McDougal Productions. Make sure to catch Jackie McDougal's awesome podcast, 40 Thrive, wherever you get your podcasts.